0: Hey, I'm Tamara Kendakar, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. So Bitcoin, the world's first cryptocurrency, was created in 2008, born from the ashes of a global banking system in Ruin. The creator of Bitcoin, known only as Satoshi Nakamoto, meant for it to be a transparent medium of exchange that would revolutionize the monetary system. For those who got into it early, a lot of the appeal was about the possibility of taking power away from banks and giving it to the people. Since then, crypto's become its own world. Bitcoin paved the way for thousands of other cryptocurrencies. There have been wild swings in their values, so some people have gotten extremely rich while others have lost their life savings. There have been huge scandals, the births of unique subcultures, all while governments have been trying to figure out if and how they should regulate a market that many, including my guest today, have compared to the Wild West.
1: You have crypto lingo and of course its own money and you can hang out with only crypto friends, work a crypto job. And I think that's the closest we ever get to to that new continent.
0: Ethan Liu quit his job as a Reuters journalist after he made a fortune in Bitcoin, and his journey led him to write the book Once a Bitcoin Miner, Scandal and Turmoil in the Cryptocurrency Wild West. He's on the show today to take us into the world of crypto and tell us why, despite everything he's seen, he still believes it's the future. You're listening to The Decibel. Hey, Ethan, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So you and I were interns together at The Star, but since then, your life's been way more interesting than mine.
1: <laughs> oh, don't say that. You've been hosting, <laughs> what, two podcasts? Uh,
0: um, I really had no idea that you were doing any of this. And I guess like you, you had started doing it when we were working together, maybe like started investing in crypto, right?
1: Yeah. And crypto is a bit like Fight Club. So they say the first rule of it is to never tell people you have Bitcoin.
0: Right. OK, that makes sense. Because I was always like, Ethan's really smart, but I don't know what he's like. He, it's, it feels like he's up to something. And I guess this is what it was. But anyway. Oh, wow.
1: That's very <laughs> generous of you to say that.
0: <laughs> um, so you have been busy over the last little while. You've written two books. Um, how involved are you still in in this world?
1: Well, I I write a crypto column in the financial post, but I don't own any uh, stake in any companies or anything. I, I'm not paid by any companies, and but I do have personal cryptocurrency holdings, mm-hmm. but that is about it.
0: Okay, so what made you want to put your savings into Bitcoin in the first place?
1: It's a lot of factors. I think it's never just one thing. So I first encountered Bitcoin was in my second year of university. And my friends and I, we were just poking around on the dark web for just no good reason. And that was when I first encountered it. And I saw that all the transactions on the dark web, when you buy something, drugs or whatever, you you have to pay with Bitcoin. And the reason for that is that there's no central administrator in this. So the funds, they can't be blocked, frozen or seized, theoretically, of course. And I think I saw a certain value in that mm-hmm. and that also that others might see that value in, you know, not specifically for that use case. And that was kind of what sparked my journey.
0: And how did that initial investment work out for you?
1: It took me a year before I actually put my money in. And I think it's like that for most people, it takes a while. and. I got in at 1,000 per Bitcoin and it just fell to like 50% right afterward. Mm. Yeah, that was that was a moment and I thought to myself, well, what the hell had I been thinking?
0: But then shortly after that, you move to Calgary and it sounds like that was around the time when Bitcoin was like having a bit of a resurgence. And can you describe what the early years of the market were like and what it was like to be in Calgary for that time period?
1: I think sometimes... When I think about it, it's quite wild that we call 2017 the early times now. Yeah. That year was pretty special. That was the year when Bitcoin hit 20,000 from 1,000. So that was a big jump. And that was what really, I think, ushered the name of Bitcoin into the mainstream for kind of the first time. And in Calgary, particularly, I think that is a city that its whole existence depends on an unpredictable commodity already. Mm -hmm. That was during an oil crash, maybe not crash, but a decline. And lots of big foreign oil majors were leaving, taking with them a lot of investment. And I think against that backdrop, and this is probably a city that understands crypto well. And the local scene was quite exciting. It was just bustling with activity.
0: But you also did well for yourself in that time period, right?
1: Yeah, I got very lucky, I would say. So when I got in in 2013, so Bitcoin was at a thousand, and I actually bought more Bitcoin in 2015. So that was that was the lowest I had ever seen Bitcoin. It got to about 200 per coin at, at one point. So, mm-hmm. uh, so it, essentially, it was uh 200 to uh, to 20,000. That's like a uh, 100x. Yeah. So between 20 to 100x, that's how much money I made. And wow. And also, that was a raging bull market. So aside from Bitcoin, there were like a thousand other cryptocurrencies at the time. And most of them, I would describe them with a word that I can't say here. It begins with an S and it describes excrement. But so these coins, they swing along with Bitcoin, but with much greater magnitude. So it was like, you know, if you were to throw a dart at a board, just hit something and you put your money in that. And it will go up. That was a really crazy time.
0: How old were you at the time?
1: I was 26 going on 27.
0: Wow. I'm really interested in the culture of crypto. And you describe the people who are deep into crypto as living kind of in their own world, right? Can you describe what that world looks like?
1: Yeah. So lots of people call cryptocurrency uh, the world of it a wild west and i agree with that but i don't think wild west is a bad thing mm-hmm. i love the wild west i think that's awesome and the reason i say that is because why do people seek out the wild west in the past um you know imagine you're you're jack from the titanic you have nothing in your homeland but you have a ticket to the new world and you want to cross over to, to go to a place where land is a plenty, which is welcoming, and also which is free from the societal hierarchies back home. And we no longer have such a new continent, but crypto in a way, it's really its own world. There's not just passion that binds the adherents. Uh, there is money constantly streaming in to keep that passion burning. So it becomes more than an industry and a subculture put together. You have crypto lingo, and of course it's own money, and you can hang out with only crypto friends, work a crypto job. And I think that's the closest we ever get to, to that new continent.
0: What kind of people make up this world? What kind of characters did you meet along the way?
1: So I, I think because it's so, it's so open, therefore I think it, it attracts everyone. So there really are all sorts of characters. And I, I think what, uh, what intrigues me most, it's not really the uh, idealists uh, plotting revolution or, uh, you know, I guess perhaps people like me, the, the restless seeking adventure. There are also uh, people who are running away from things that are darker and more tangible. Mm-hmm. People who perhaps have not done for themselves in this world that we know, but they want to go somewhere where they can start anew. And in crypto, you can achieve that because because the field is so new. And especially back in 2017, the, the most established person there only has seven years more experience than a person just entering.
0: Right. So you're free from like, you know, the typical social hierarchies and judgment based on your past.
1: Yeah. And you can you can bury your name and be born anew.
0: So you talked a bit about the Wild West comparison, which kind of runs through your book. How do you think that comparison helps us to understand the Bitcoin
1: devotee? I think a lot of people, they tend to look at this world only through the lens of, say, monetary policy or, or computer science. But I think there's a whole other way to look at it, which is through the lens of the human condition. And I think ultimately, while this technology is new, if you look at it through this lens, the whole story, it's its something as old as the hills.
0: But the frontier myth romanticizes or kind of erases a lot of the really darker parts of the history of the Wild West, right? Like colonialism, all kinds of brutality. So what are the darker parts of this story that you witnessed during your time in this world and, and through your reporting?
1: Well, first, I have to say that I don't see the, the crypto world as a, as a new version of the frontier myth. I think of it as a realization of the frontier myth, because what the frontier myth promised, that's, that's actually not real. But what crypto does for a lot of its adherents, that is actually real. You, you realize that, that dream that you have through that. So th- th- therefore, I think a lot of the darker aspects of uh, of the actual frontier they may not necessarily be present in the crypto world. Mm-hmm. But what really I think is present in both is that because it's so new, because all sorts of people are streaming in, you can end up with quite a lot of unsavory characters. We talked just now about the uh, the thousands of other coins that put- mushroomed in two thousand and seventeen, and And, you know, I described them with something resembling excrement. And if you had invested in one of those coins back then, it's quite likely you would have lost quite a lot of money by now. Yeah. And I was uh, at this event in Calgary once. There were people literally trying to sell a scam. And there was a guy quoting Bible verses. He was saying, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. It was the most bizarre thing. But Mm -hmm. I think parts of this space, uh, there are people like that.
0: There is a stat in your book that says one in five investors internationally bought crypto with borrowed money. And there was a crisis in the community that ended in in suicide for a lot of people. This was something that you saw happening in South Korea, for example.
1: Yeah. And I think if if people were to ask me for investment advice, I think the number one thing you should never do is to invest with borrowed money there are people who did that and ended up well that famously there was this dutch guy who mortgaged his house Mm. and he actually became very very wealthy but it could have easily ended in a totally different direction from him i think yes sometimes people they gamble too much on their hopes
0: Can you tell me about Virgil Griffith and and how you guys ended up in North Korea together?
1: So North Korea was holding a cryptocurrency conference and North Korea, it's been subject to lots of economic sanctions. So cryptocurrency being outside the traditional financial system, it's seen as a a way around that. And so North Korea has been accused of doing lots of shady things with crypto. So Mm -hmm. I think for me, I... uh, I've been reading all about that. And when North Korea announced this conference, it was open to the public and anyone could go. And I signed up right away. I thought this was a a golden opportunity to see everything for myself. And I think Virgil, he's the head of special projects of the Ethereum Foundation at the time. He probably felt the same.
0: Years later, he ended up in prison. So what happened at that conference that landed him in prison?
1: so virgil i think alone among all of the eight foreigners that went to that conference he he was to be like a noted speaker at the conference and he also being an american americans can't go to north korea without express permission because uh, there once was a young american he went there he got detained and he died and so before the trip he asked the state department and the state department told him no and he went anyway so I think already when he was going in, there was someone watching him and he gave a speech to the North Koreans. And so the authorities, they were accusing him of trying to help North Korea evade sanctions through the use of cryptocurrency. He's not being accused of actually benefiting North Korea, just that he had the intent. And by going there and what he did afterward, he had acted on that intent. Virgil's a very special person. I think he's he's very brilliant, but also very transparent and open. And I think he believes others are like that as well. And so he very willingly talked to the authorities after North Korea. And even in North Korea, he was telling us that he was going to go talk to the authorities. And I don't think he suspected anything, but they kept having meetings. And eventually, I don't think he realized that he was in trouble until it was too late. And so... He was arrested the day before Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving, in 2019, and the case had been progressing to a trial from then until September this year, and he had been of the position that he was not guilty all the way until the first day of the trial when he quite unexpectedly pleaded guilty, took a plea deal, and there's a recommendation for six and a half years in prison.
0: And you went to New York to see the trial in person, right? What was that like?
1: Yes, I did. And it was, I won't, I won't want to use the word traumatizing, that might be overstating it, but I definitely felt something in a vicarious way because I could hear him sigh audibly. And when you plead guilty to something, the court has to be satisfied that you're not being coerced, that you know what's going on. So He had to say everything in his own words. I did this. And Mm. I I think that does something to a man. And he said he had depression and he was taking medication for it.
0: So despite all of this, um, like everything that's happened, do you think there is still promise in crypto? Could you see a better financial system based on this technology or see this technology used in other ways that could benefit our society?
1: Yeah. I think I'm very bullish on this. And uh, ultimately I believe in the future of it. And particularly if you look at what's been happening recently, I think the pandemic has ushered in a whole wave of uncontrolled inflation. And I think our monetary system, we perhaps take that for granted. We take our infrastructure for granted. But just a few days ago, I saw a headline in Argentina the government was going to freeze grocery prices for 90 days. And in Venezuela, people were shaving off golden flakes to pay for things. And in what kind of a world do we see such headlines? And ultimately, Bitcoin uh, at its heart, its value preposition is that it's a store of value, it's an inflation hedge. It's something that's, uh, its value is not affected by inflation basically. And I think as long as we have mismanaged economies, uh, that there will be ground for Bitcoin to thrive.
0: Ethan, thank you so much for this very fascinating conversation.
1: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: All right, that's it for today. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Kasia Mihailovic. David Crosby edits the show. Angela Pichenza is our executive editor. Thank you so much to Ethan Liu. His book, Once a Bitcoin Miner, Scandal and Turmoil in the Cryptocurrency Wild West, is out now from ECW Press. If you want to reach us, you can email us at thedecibel at If you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at Anima underscore TK. If you haven't already, hit that follow button wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.